We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour, and I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today, Ben Howard. Ben Howard is a researcher of 9-11. He often stays anonymous online, and for good reason, and I don't blame him. He is an ardent geopolitical writer and student of the last couple of years regarding this event, as well as others. And why did I bring him on the show? Is it because just the other day we had a phenomenal uh, in-depth discussion about the Malaysia summit meeting and the missed opportunities from the NSA and the CIA regarding two Al-Qaeda operatives who would later go on to hijack Flight 77, Khalid al-Badar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. So much so, I was fascinated with the topic that I wanted Ben to come onto the show and wanted to uh, talk about this often uh, forgotten topic. Ben, hey, listen, thanks for coming on. Man. Yeah, thank you for having me, Adam. Oh, sure. Um, I ran into you, uh, I want to say about two years ago or a year ago, um, I really enjoyed what you were posting. And I said, why doesn't this guy actually become more public and he stays anonymous? <laughs> um, even when I, I, I often miss opportunities to introduce you or to talk about the stuff, you often stay anonymous. Um, is there a reason why you do so? I think particularly on on Twitter, I don't have a lot of Twitter followers compared to certain people I know who have in the hundreds of thousands. But uh, anytime you post something and and it goes viral completely unexpectedly, uh, you can get a lot of drive by uh, uh, hits, so to speak. Hmm. So I try to keep myself relatively low key on Twitter. Uh, but of course, I I write publicly under my own name, and those posts are linked for my Twitter account. So it'd be pretty easy for somebody. Uh, who was dedicated to suss out who I am, but but certainly with respect to to nine eleven truth, I I have uh, no qualms about putting my putting my name on it. Uh, certainly in my in my more academic published uh, published writings that I've done on the issue. Yes, and in, you know it was the one article that uh, you helped publish along with Aaron Good and Peter Dale Scott last year uh, called the twenty year shadow of nine eleven. Um, and regretfully, I have to admit that um, when I don't talk about this article much, and that's because I really don't see much from you much in uh, Aaron Good, who's a little bit more of a prolific poster, but Peter Dale Scott, I know, is older now, and he's just semi-retired. So it's like, I, I would love to have a, a great, a long, in-depth discussion about uh, stuff like this that you've written about, and I think these are the things that should be published ad nauseum instead of the regular fringe conspiracy stuff that we see online. Um, yeah, agreed. Or, or certainly what we see from the mainstream media, uh, which oh, continually keeps keeps coming up with things about uh, this this FBI operation Encore without giving some of the crucial context. 
Um, and I'll just briefly add that um, that Aaron, Peter, and I are are slightly expanding these articles that we wrote last year, um, and they'll be republished this year on on Aaron's website, AmericanException.com, uh, in the in the coming few weeks. Yeah, I'll have those actually linked to the bottom of the description here as well. Um, but Ben, let's get right to it. Um, I think um, well, a great lead-in would be the discussion that we had previously. Um, mm. It's something that I too share with you, a uh, great interest in the Malaysia summit meeting. And this is, I yes. think, the crux of the whole 9-11 uh, case here is because the one agency, and I think we can agree, maybe you'll extrapolate more on, is the NSA. It's often forgotten. And it's yes. something that really just grinds my gears when I think about it, because the NSA, according to the former senior executive, Thomas Drake, and I've spoken with him many times on Twitter, that it was mm -hmm. the NSA who had the most information regarding Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda than any agency in the world. And I've written myself um, ad nauseum about how the NSA had uh, bugged uh, Osama bin Laden's satellite phone. That's how they got the number of the house in Yemen. Yeah. Um, now, because of that, I, I, I've asked Thomas Drake, you know, God's sakes, is there any way for me to file a freedom of information request mm -hmm. regarding those phone calls? And it just so happened that he said that, yes, there would be an executive order regarding it. And so myself and as a co-researcher that you don't know, his name is Ed Brotherton. He was from he was mm -hmm. a former member of We Are Change LA. And he looked up the executive order and said, well, it's past the 25 year limit. We could possibly get those cable uh, the, the transcripts of Bin Laden's satellite phone. And I said, has anybody have even done it? So because of this and because of the NSA listening to these phone calls and because the CIA had listened, they had a, a listing post, I think in Madagascar about the house in Yemen. Right. God knows what they were talking about on those phones. They're not like everyday yeah. Americans talking about Kim Kardashian and the Yankees. You know, these are serious <laughs> men talking about serious issues. If that's the yeah. case, Ben, and if that's the case, then they may have listened to projects like uh, the 90 East Africa bombing or the USS Cole, hell, even 9-11. And this is a way to manipulate, say, in other words, allow for these attacks to happen and then take advantage of the situation by um, extrapolating on former uh, foreign policy goals or something like that, for that example. Is this something that you share in common? Is that the NSA um, is often forgotten, but they had the most information, the most intelligence. Uh, what would you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, the typical MO for the national security state is that the FBI essentially takes the fall when, when something goes wrong. Mm. And I'm, I'm making air quotes here. In the case of 9-11, the CIA did receive uh, at least a modicum of scrutiny from uh, some of the relevant congressional committees, uh, you know, people that, that become very relevant to this, like Tom Wilshire, for instance, uh, who was a who was a deputy director of the CIA's ALEC station, the Bin Laden issue station? You know, he was at least brought before the the uh, you know Joint Intelligence Committee and and asked to sort of give an explanation for what had happened. Uh, but the NSA, as you as you mentioned, uh, knew way more, likely knew way more than the CIA did, and yet they've escaped total uh, scrutiny or or any kind of accountability for for what is undoubtedly a. Uh, a massive, um, you know, you'd have to call it a failure based on what their based on what their ostensible purpose is, you know, protecting protecting America's national security. But as you mentioned, um, you know, beyond the uh, 
beyond the fact that they had bugged Osama bin Laden's um, satellite phone, they had bugged this crucial uh, hub in Yemen, which was a, a you know by all accounts an, an, an Al Qaeda operations center, where, as you mentioned, things such as the '98 embassy bombings, phone calls were routed through that hub for that uh, for that that bombing that that took place in 1998. Likely, phone calls um, relevant to the to the coal bombing were routed through uh, through Yemen. We know that. Um, certain people who later were involved, uh, who were alleged by the U.S. government to have been involved in 9-11, uh, such as Khalid al-Madar, who, who we'll probably talk about more. Um, he certainly was was um, alleged by the uh, by the Yemeni government to have been involved in the coal bombing and was and is very possible that he was present in Yemen at the time. Um, certainly phone calls between him when he was in the United States and this Yemen hub uh, were bugged, uh, were, were, were intercepted. Uh, much later in 2000. So um, the the question of this this phone in particular, this hub in particular, uh, and the lengths to which, uh, for instance, the CIA uh, went, you you mentioned that they had a listening post in Madagascar. I mean, they had an entirely, the CIA developed an entirely separate method of, of listening in on these phone calls because the NSA was so opaque um, with what they were sharing. And it's interesting, um, you know, when you think about what the what the NSA knew, you mentioned Tom Drake, um, and he's he's quoted in in Tom Duffy and and uh, Ray Novoselsky's mm. book, The Watchdogs uh, Didn't Bark. I believe that's the title, um, as essentially saying that the the NSA's counterterror shop, the CT shop, uh, was writing reports about uh, these phone calls that they were listening to over the course of many years, um, and and what he says is that no one was listening to them. Uh, but I think it's far more likely that these reports were intentionally suppressed. Um, the way that the internal bureaucracy of the NSA works is that, um, you know, between the CIA and the FBI, for instance, there's sort of peer-to-peer information sharing. You know, so an example of this, uh, which was you know ultimately stymied, but but for instance, Doug Miller and Steve Rossini at the Alex Station, they were two FBI detailees there. And as a matter of course, they would pass information that was relevant to the FBI that the CIA obtained about Al Qaeda over to the FBI. They didn't need to bump it all the way up to George Tenet, you know, to get that information over. On the other hand, it seems that the way the NSA operates is that um, top leadership at the NSA has to essentially approve every bit of information which is passed from the NSA to the CIA. This is according to the to the reporting done by Duffy Novoselsky. Um, so if that's the case. Um, then, then it seems that these reports, um, many of which, you know, would have been obviously highly relevant. I mean, one instance, uh, as a gentleman who was involved in the 98 embassy bombing, he was supposed to, um, he was supposed to have killed himself, but he managed to survive this man, Owali. Um, he subsequently made many phone calls to the Yemen hub, uh, which we know was under NSA, you know, observation at this point, they were intercepting all of these phone calls. Um, so he's making these phone calls immediately after Al Qaeda has just bombed these embassies in in uh, in Dar es Salaam and and in Nairobi. Um, are we are we really to believe that the NSA didn't read these reports about these calls? That the senior leadership within the NSA didn't read these reports and didn't find them relevant to be passed on to the CIA? I mean, this was a man who was actively this man Awali who was making these phone calls was actively on the run from you know from the americans at this point having perpetrated this terrorist attack uh and yet for some reason the nsa 
uh, never passed any information over to either the CIA or the FBI about this guy's whereabouts and, and the, the phone number, for instance, that he was making a call from, which they would have easily been able to trace to, to the safe house he was located in. So instances like that, the, the 98 embassy bombing, um, demonstrate that the, the NSA did have, almost certainly did have these very relevant, timely phone calls uh, and yet neglected to pass this information over to other agencies at a crucial time uh, when they when they could have um, in the first place. I mean, again, these this same phone line was used as a planning, you know, was used to plan these attacks. So it potentially could have been used to prevent these night that the the embassy bombings, um, but certainly could have been used to apprehend this guy uh, a while after the fact. Um, and and that was not done. Uh, so you have to wonder what what is going on here. Um, and I think that um, these bureaucratic procedures that are in place uh, allow the NSA um, to selectively share information uh, in a particular way that benefits, uh, uh, from my point of view, certain people who have you know, grander geopolitical uh, uh, goals, as you mentioned. They're able to share certain information, withhold other information, uh, and allow certain things to proceed, allow attacks that they are aware are in the planning stages to proceed. Um, and and uh, withhold information from the relevant agencies who would who ostensibly are tasked with stopping precisely these kinds of attacks. Um, so that certainly is what happened in the 98 embassy in the embassy bombing case. Um, as you mentioned, it seems highly likely that this same uh, Yemen hub was used for planning the USS coal bombing, uh, which which took place in October 2000. For people who, who are not familiar, it was you know that was a that was a pretty major um, attack at the time. You know, before 9/11, uh, against American interests, likely used that same phone hub, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, it was it's very possible that this same hub was used in 9/11. Certainly, Khalid Al-Madar made phone calls uh, while he was in the United States to this hub while he was living in San Diego. Um, even beyond the content of the phone calls, just knowing that he was calling from a San Diego exchange, calling this uh, this Al Qaeda operation center that they were. Um, monitoring. It should have given the NSA a good clue that, hey, the, uh, the Al-Qaeda has someone in San Diego who's making phone calls to their operations center. Uh, isn't that relevant for, let's say, the FBI to go and pay them, at least surveil this house, this apartment that they're making these phone calls from? That was never done, certainly. Um, you know, that would have been in, in early 2000 that those phone calls were being made. Um, so uh, all of these instances point um point the finger at the NSA as being a key agency here, withholding information, very relevant information uh, from other agencies, preventing them from, from doing what is ostensibly their job uh, to, to protect American national security, which again is uh, allegedly the entire purpose of the national security state, uh, according to the, the mainstream account. Yeah, sure. I, you know, just to follow up on that too, um, the CIA's Alex station, Michael Shore was in chief of station there. Had mm. a um, account had a case officer working with the NSA's unit in uh, the Yemen hub, and informed him that they had a line uh, monitoring the hub. And then when he went to the NSA's, I, I believe it was the Deputy General Barbara McNamara, and told her, said, "You know, well, we got half of the line. Could you give us the other half?" Right. And she said no. And Scheuer is a very brutish type. He's not used to saying being told no no and the nsa actually said if you actually um uncover our operation you know we'll take it accord and he basically was told to stand down from it and so they that's when they started um you know putting case officers near the, uh, the house and do 
human intelligence about it. Um, so, okay, this is where our conversation takes off on Twitter the other day. And um, from this uh, phone call in December of 2000, um, the NSA learns about a phone call from a person named Khalid, who is Wali bin Atash. And um, he's calling Khalid, and that's Khalid Al-Madar. Now, Khalid Al-Madar, for those who don't know, is married to the daughter of the owner of the house. And the owner of the house is Ahmed Al-Hada. And his, his daughter is Hoda Al-Hada. And Khalid Al-Madar is married to her, making him the son-in-law. So he, he's at the house, and he picks up the phone, and they have a discussion. And what the NSA hears is a, is a summit meeting that's to take place in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And at this meeting are some of the biggest names in terrorism in the world. Uh, one of them is um, Ridwan Isamuddin. He goes by the Nam de Gore Hambali, one of the leaders of Jemaah Islamiyah, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, um, the owner of the condo, Yazid Sufat, who is an um, Indonesian businessman who has links to Jemaah Islamiyah, which is an affiliate of an Al-Qaeda affiliate named Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, known for bombings and hijackings and um, um, and bombings of Christian churches. So they listen to this phone call, the NSA, and then they decide to inform the FBI and the CIA to do human intelligence because the NSA does not do that in the hopes of getting photographs to the names of, that they hear about on these phones. Well, the CIA actually informs their case of uh, their base station in Malaysia and the Malaysian authorities do take pictures of the event in the three days of, I think it was January 5th to January 8th of 2000. And um, yeah, this is where our conversation really takes off. And then uh, from there, they actually go to, um, from the meeting, they go to Thailand um, right. and then to the United States. But there's some discrepancy here, isn't it, Ben? Because according, there's two stories and I want to hear your thoughts on it. There's one story that the CIA broke into the hotel that they're staying in. And there's another story where they got wind of their uh, passports from some meeting or something like that. But either way, they get the photographs of the passport. And what they find is that both of these men, Khalid Al-Minar and Wapa Hasbun, both have U.S. visas. So they're coming to the United States, knowing full well that these men are involved with previous terrorist attacks like U.S.'s goal, 1980s Africa bombings. Um, take it from here. What is going on, Ben? Yeah, so this, so the the thing that, as you mentioned, the thing that really brings these two men, Khalid Al Madar and Nawaf Al Hazmi, who again, you know, these two men are alleged to have been um, a bit been in, in on Flight seventy seven, which crashed into the Pentagon. Um, they in December of nineteen ninety nine, as you mentioned, there's two conflicting stories. But what we know happens is that in December of nineteen ninety nine, these two men travel through the United Arab Emirates, and as you say, the the one story is that. Uh, the CIA or possibly a local Emirati intelligence agency was tipped off by uh, a phone intercept um, that these two men were going to be passing through and that uh, that that they should essentially break into their hotel rooms and, and scan or take photos of their passports. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is that is one story of how this information was obtained by the CIA, ultimately, who who is who obtained this information. Um, so that there was an NSA tip that that eventually got this information to the CIA. As you say, the other story is that um, they were sort of routinely scanned at customs coming through the UAE, and that it was then that the that the CIA became aware, likely through you know some sort of relationship between Emirati Customs and then the Emirati Intelligence Agency and then the CIA. Um, 
but as you say, in either case, and it's interesting, I mean, initially, the story is that Hazmi is the one with the visa. We know that both men had visas because they did ultimately come into the United States, uh, you know, under a valid visa. But the initial story was just about Hazmi. For some reason, Khalid Madar, his the information about the fact that he had a visa was initially not part of the report. Why that's the case, I'm not sure, because mm. certainly the visa would have been in his passport. Um, but when, when you look at some of the initial um, uh, intelligence reports uh, and what Steve Rossini and Doug Miller ended up, you know, which sort of precipitated the fact that we're not talking about this whole event, um, it was only about Al-Hazmi's uh, visa. But as you say, um, that information made its way to the CIA, um, who then uh, followed them uh, you know, tr you know, uh, via their surveillance to Kuala Lumpur, where they were a part of this summit. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, all the people that you mentioned, people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for instance, I mean, these were all known people to American intelligence and to local, you know, for instance, local Malaysian intelligence agencies. Um, so this was this was understood by everyone who was aware of it, uh, that this was a pretty high level, important meeting. Mm. Um, and yet, uh, as, for instance, Kevin Fenton documents in his book, Disconnecting the Dots, um, you know, they had ample opportunity, for instance, to bug this condominium. I mean, they, as you mentioned, the owner of this condo was known to be associated with, um, the, to be a backer. He was an Indonesian man backer. I, I can't recall his name off the top of my head, but he Yazid, was... Yazid Sufa. Yeah, he, he was a backer of um, a local group, um, which was operating in Southeast Asia, which was affiliated with Al-Qaeda. I mean, this was well known that mm. where his condo was, was well known. They had ample opportunity, for instance, to do um, physical surveillance of everything that was happening inside. I mean, certainly the CIA, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s had access to all the top end, you know, audiovisual surveillance equipment you can you can imagine. Um, but they did not take that opportunity to film or record, for instance, what was going on um, inside this meeting. As you mentioned, they did take um, some photographs um, outside of the outside of the condominium complex, and they did take some photos. Um, but interestingly, um, some of those photos, um, they ended up misidentifying certain people. And this is another thing that Kevin Fenton talks about in his mm. book. They end up um, confusing Khalid al-Madar uh, and Walid bin Atash. Um, and it seems as though to some extent it was uh, uh, almost an uh, sort of a, um, an effort by the CIA uh, to mislead um, people. In particular, there was a particular instance where they were trying to determine what an FBI source knew uh, about these two men. And this source, despite the fact that the CIA knew the actual identity of these of these two men, Officially, the CIA then became convinced that Walid bin Atash and, and Khalid al-Madar were the same person, uh, which which complicated matters going forward. Um, but it's just an, an example of um, seeming incompetence, despite the fact that uh, they they absolutely knew who these people were, had had ample opportunity to surveil them, um, had had recorded information, for instance, about Khalid al-Madar's passage through uh, the UAE, all of these things. Um, yet there's a seeming concerted effort not to know uh, for the CIA not to find out what was happening at this meeting. Um, you know, we don't know as a result what was discussed at this meeting. Um, it's very possible that details of the, the this meeting happened in, I guess, January of 2000. So it's very possible that details of the uh, USS coal bombing, which was in October of 2000, mm -hmm. and which Khalid Al-Madar, um, according to Yemeni, uh, authorities had had some role in 
Uh, and obviously he was present at this meeting. It's possible that details of the USS coal bombing were discussed. Um, it's possible that um, Khalid, uh, 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 Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was in the process of planning a, a, another potential planes attack at this point. So it's possible that some details of that were being discussed. And obviously it's possible that some details of, of the ultimate planes operation 9-11 were, were being discussed as well. Uh, but we don't know any of that um, because, mm. again, there was seemingly this concerted effort not to know what was going on inside this condominium. Uh, and as a result, we we really don't know. Um, but as you say, um, the crucial issue uh, here for certainly for the FBI would be concerned about this is the mm. fact that Khalid Hamadar and Nawaf al-Hazmi have this visa uh, to enter into the United States. Now, the whole question of how this how they got this visa I mean, we don't know uh, how these two men would have been granted this visa. Uh, certainly, they both had past associations with, you know, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, but there's a long history of the CIA facilitating visas for precisely people like this. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, for instance, at the history of, of Omar al-Rahman, the, mm. the Egyptian blind sheikh, um, there are many documented instances of CIA, of, of we know for a fact, CIA officers facilitating his visas to enter the United States at a time when he was a wanted terrorist by the FBI. Um, so so in, in the first place, how they got these visas is, is likely its own very interesting story that we don't know the details of. But suffice to say that the CIA had a, a history of giving men like this uh, visas. In any case, uh, as you mentioned, they, they go to, uh, they transit through Bangkok um, at which point they are apparently lost. Mm. Um, now, what's interesting is, I mean, the fact that they have these visas, their ultimate destination should be obvious, right? And if you if you're the CIA, you can look at what's the time frame that we lost these men. Uh, we know likely where they're headed. What possible American cities could they have flown to from Bangkok during this time period? Can we do some surveillance at these at these points? But of course, none of that information ever reached the FBI, who would have been the relevant agency uh, since the CIA legally, at least. I mean, you know, there are instances where the CIA almost certainly has done, uh, I mean, Operation Chaos, for one thing, has done domestic surveillance. But uh, but the FBI was never informed. And um, and you I know you've had on this show previously, Steve Rossini, um, who has told his his story of what exactly went on there. Uh, but but um, I'll I'll just end this I've been talking for a long time by oh. briefly saying that uh the the information about this visa made its way to the the CIA's Alex station which uh was a unit that uh was created with the purpose of facilitating information transfer mm. from across the CIA since the CIA is organized by these geographical bureaus right the, the near east division which covers sort of southwest asia the you know the old soviet division of course which covered the USSR so the Alex station was covered to be this global station, which would cover all Al-Qaeda related issues. And it was meant to be an information clearinghouse to get the relevant information to the relevant parties. Well, in this case, the fact that these two men, Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, who were known members of Al-Qaeda who were traveling to the United States on visas, that information never made it to the FBI, despite the efforts of Doug Miller and Steve Rossini, who were two FBI agents within the Alex station. They attempted to get that information out and they were blocked from doing so. Mm. Um, and had that information, had those names even just made it to the FBI, um, I think it's 9 uh, 11 would not have happened the way that we understand it happening today. I think that's, I think that's for sure. Yeah, just a small correction. Mark Rossini is his name. I'm um, sorry, Mark Rossini. No, no, yes, yeah, yes. it's good. Um, this leads, I, I, I think we can agree, Ben, that 
this issue regarding the cable that was infamously not read according to Tenet um, right. was actually brought up in the joint house inquiry report. Now I, I believe uh, I am the only person in the world to upload both the nine eleven commission and joint house and joint house inquiry in full on YouTube. And I don't see anybody else doing it. And why do yeah. I do it? is because there is some parts of it where you can see that say the DCI of the CIA George Senn is basically lying. And mm -hmm. I'm going to play an audio clip of one such instance in which Carl Levin, one a panelist from the Joint House Inquiry, is actually um, interviewing uh, George Senn about that cable. March 5th, mm -hmm. the CIA learned that Hosmer had actually entered the United States on January 15th, <coughs> seven days after leaving the Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. So now the CIA knows Hazmi is in the United States, but the CIA still doesn't put Hazmi or Midhar on the watch list and still does not notify the FBI about a very critical fact, a known Al-Qaeda operative. We're at war with Al-Qaeda. A known Al-Qaeda operative got into the United States. My question is, do you know specifically why the FBI was not notified of that critical fact at that time? The, the cable that came in from the field at the time, sir, was labeled information only, and I know that nobody read that cable. But my question is, do you know why the FBI was not notified of the fact that an Al-Qaeda operative now was known in March of the year 2000 to have entered the United States? Why, was the CIA, why did the CIA not specifically notify the CIA. That's my question. The FBI. Sir, if we, were, we weren't aware of it, when it came in the headquarters, we couldn't have notified them. Nobody read that cable in March, in the March time frame. So that the cable that said that Hazmi had entered the United States came to your headquarters, nobody read it? Yes, sir. It was an information-only cable from the field, and nobody read that information-only cable. Should it have been read? Yes, of course, in hindsight. And should it have been read at the time? Of course it should have been read. All right. My question is, do you know who should have read it? I don't know that, sir. Now, uh, according to uh, Lawrence Wright, author of The Looming Tower, it's alleged by him that over 50 agents from the counterterrorism unit had read that cable. Yeah. Um, and we know of two, at least two, recorded um, CIA case officers who were working at Alex Station and this is all in thanks to that wonderful book that you mentioned, Raynor Wilshilski and John Duppy's The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. Um, two CIA case officers read that cable, Tom Wilshire, the deputy chief of Alex Station, and Michelle Ann Casey, who is the lead ticket at Yemen. Um, and you actually brought this up, uh, which was the cable was first read by Casey. The second person to read it was Doug Miller, who was actually working out of the FBI's New York field office who was on loan uh, to work with the CIA and other agencies at Alex Station. When Miller read the cable, he runs yeah. to his computer and he basically drafts a, a copy of the, uh, the cable, but he has to get authorization from the CIA to share CIA information, CIA information. And what happens? Well, when, according to Mark Rossini, uh, the cable is not sent. And Mark Rossini, I've interviewed before, basically says that when he went to complain, he went to Michelle and Casey and basically says that what's to hold up on Miller's cable. And he's told the following one, 
you, the FBI, it's not jurisdiction of the FBI because we think the next attack is in Southeast Malaysia. And two, we'll let the FBI know when we'll let them know. Yeah. Astonishing that they would think that the next attack is in Southeast Asia because of that meeting in Malaysia. Well, how would they know the next attack unless they knew that they were coming to the United States and wanted these attacks to happen or for some other reason, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But Ben, I mean, this is a huge uh, lapse of, uh, I mean, one could say malfeasance, but right there, Tenet could basically be seen as lying before to join inquiry. I think it's undeniable that he did. I, uh, um, I mean, he clearly, when you when you look at his relationship, for instance, with Richard Blee, who was Tom Wilshire's um, boss at the time, mm. Richard Blee was running the CIA's Alex station. Uh, we know from from things that Mark Rossini has said uh, that Blee and Tenet had a close relationship. It's almost certainly the case that Tenet would have known this. Um, according to Richard Clark, Tenet knew intricate details of all manner of things that Al-Qaeda was doing. The idea that Tenet would not have known that people that worked directly under him and who he had a close personal relationship did not. The fact that the idea that he would not have known that they had read this cable and frankly, the idea that he did not know this information personally himself, I find completely untenable. I find that completely ridiculous that he did not personally know these these facts. Um, so the fact that he would get in front of Congress and and uh, and assemble in, in such an obvious way, uh, I think is pretty ridiculous. Um, it's very interesting. There are several related things that happened here that that subsequently became an issue such that we know about it, such that it's in the public record and we're able mm. to talk about it. Because you have, in the first instance, you have this information that you mentioned, Doug Miller sort of uh, running to his computer. Um, and I, I I hope that Doug Miller is able to retire from the FBI soon. My understanding is he still works there and he's sort of cagey about talking about this. I, I've heard, I've heard, I've asked Mark Rossini to see his retired. Okay. He's quite cagey. He doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So, so I, I hope that one day he does say more about what, what mm. happened. Mm. Um, but in any case, as you mentioned, he, he understands the importance of this information. He understands this as well within the FBI's purview. And um, Kevin Fenton, I won't get into the details here, but Kevin Fenton writes extensively about this because the, as you mentioned, this idea that, um, that, uh, and she's named as Michael Ann Casey, Michelle yep. Ann Casey in different reports, but that this woman who, as you said, had the Yemen ticket, um, she was a subordinate of Tom Wilshire's. Um, she mentions this, oh, we we think the next attack is going to be in Southeast Asia. So it's, you know, it's nothing for the FBI to worry about. Fenton writes extensively about how um, this whole South Asia, the potential next attack being in South Asia was very much a feint. Um, and he feels it was an intentional feint, uh, which was designed to give um, these people cover cover within the bureaucratic you know, system to block this information from getting to the FBI. Um, but more crucially, uh, you have another person, uh, Alfreda Francis Bukowski, mm. um, who is who is now uh, infamous for those of us to whom she's infamous for for being in that photo with Obama and Biden and Clinton when Osama bin Laden was was allegedly being uh, being killed and and uh, his body unceremoniously dumped from a helicopter into the into the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Um, she directly lied uh, to Miller and Rossini. She claimed, and she also lied to the to the um, 9-11 Commission because she claimed that she personally brought this information about this visa to FBI headquarters, that she personally walked it in the door. There's no record of her ever going to the Hoover Building, which is the FBI's headquarters in Washington, D.C. She never did this. She lied directly to them in order to prevent them. This essentially shut them down because when she said, I brought this information, and she was, she was essentially Wilshire's 
um, direct subordinate. It seems it's hard to suss out exactly what the bureaucratic structure is, but it seems that she was superior to to Michael and Casey, Michelle and Casey, mm. and she was a she was a subordinate to Tom Wilshire. When she said that, when she told the two of these FBI agents, I personally brought this information to the FBI. What can they do at that point? They're being told that she did this. They were not able at that point to check and see if she had actually done this. And in any case, they would likely have lost their jobs and their security clearances if they had tried to do anything, which at that point in time, they were not willing to do. Not fully, obviously, they don't really don't have the hindsight in the context that we now have. Um, but it's so interesting because what what happens in this instance is that, um, so you mentioned Michael and Casey is the one who says to Doug Miller, you know, this isn't an issue for the FBI. Um, one of the first uh, responses that she sends to Miller, Miller is essentially like, you know, can I send this cable? Why is this being held up? And she specifically names Tom Wilshire. She specifically says, you know, this is that we're, we're putting a hold on this per Tom Wilshire. So she's specifically naming his authority as having done this. Um, this puts him personally in a very tricky situation because it puts on the record that he is aware of this information about these two men traveling to the United States, which becomes a problem for him subsequently because um, some of the cables that that uh, it seems that Wilshire and, and Levin were uh, rather that Tennant and, and Levin were discussing in that um, clip you posted, um, there was some cable traffic between the Kuala Lumpur station and the Bangkok station hmm. because um, when Khalid Al-Madar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi left Kuala Lumpur uh, in, um, I can't remember precisely the month, but I think it was January of 2000 that that, that, that summit happened and that they left for Bangkok. Um, Kuala Lumpur essentially passed the task of observing and surveilling these two men, Khalid Al-Madar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, to the Bangkok station. And then the Bangkok station promptly lost them as they were coming to the United States, as they were flying to San Diego. So Kuala Lumpur, um, I think sort of being naive and being sort of in the dark about what exactly was going on here, asks the Bangkok station, hey, what happened to these two men? Do you know what where they went? You know, can you give us an update on their status? Um, and the Bangkok station, uh, they first, they sort of drag their feet. They send their first response cable. And I believe these cables were in March of 2000. So a couple months subsequent, probably somebody at Kuala Lumpur was saying, hey, do we ever, you know, what happened to those two guys with that whole thing with the visa? Um, so in March of 2000, the first cable comes back from the Bangkok station to the Kuala Lumpur station. No, we don't have that information. We can't, we don't know what's going on with those guys, which is not true. They absolutely did have that information. But the second cable that they send is one of the crucial ones because they explicitly say in that cable that Nawaf Al-Hazmi and a companion who they don't name in that cable, but obviously is Khalid Al-Madar, they say explicitly in that cable that those two men have traveled to the United States, that they've likely traveled to the United States, that they believe that's what happened. Now, the problem for Wilshire arises when he reads this cable mm. in, Mar in May of 2001, because now he's on the hook having blocked this visa information from getting to the FBI in the first place. And that's in the cable record, right? Which we now know about. We can go and read those cables. And now he's read these cables between Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur indicating that these guys traveled to the US. So now he knows that. And he knows that it's in the record that he's read that cable. So this becomes a big problem for him. And it becomes a problem for Tenet because uh, of course, Wilshire was a crucial person in the Al Qaeda issue station. And his becoming aware of that information in the May 2001 timeframe is very relevant because that's precisely the timeframe when uh, uh, I believe even the 9-11 Commission report has a chapter titled, uh, you know, the, the siren is blinking red, yeah. right? That's the time when the, the everybody in the American national security state understands a terrorist attack is coming. 
And here's Tom Wilshire, deputy director of the CIA's Alex Station, Al-Qaeda issue station, who becomes aware that these two men, at least at some point, went to the United States. And he sits on that information, does nothing with it, right? Yeah. And he engages in this bureaucratic malfeasance where um, he has a, an FBI detailee, an FBI analyst, a woman named uh, Gillespie. I cannot remember. Mar Margaret name. Gillespie. Margaret Gillespie, right. So he has her do a document review. He says, because uh, I, I I cannot remember who, I, I believe that Wilshire looks at these cables with another person. So another person is sitting with him. Um, and so he sort of can't just, first off, he can't pretend he didn't see it because it's in the record that he looked at it, which we we have that record. And secondly, this person was with him who sees a, who saw those same cables while he was looking at them. So he has to do something with this, right? So he asks this woman, Margaret Gillespie, um, do a document review, look through all of these copious cables, thousands of cables, and find something that we have, may have missed. Now, Wilshire, of course, knows precisely what they missed. Mm. <laughs> it's the cables he just looked at, mm -hmm. right? And he asks Gillespie, look through all these, but it's not a big deal, is what he tells her. It's put it on the bed. It's a, it's not an important thing. Do it when you have time for it. And it's ultimately her finding those same two cables that Wilshire looked at, which prompted him to ask her to do this in the first place. When she finds them, she personally goes and forms the FBI. And that begins a whole separate story with Dina Corsi and all of that. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting that this whole sequence of events is ultimately what does lead the FBI to finding out about these two men. But the the way that it happens is so circuitous precisely because Tom Wilshire is sitting there controlling the flow of information um, between the CIA and the FBI and doing everything he can to prevent the FBI from becoming aware of these very relevant facts, which again, when Gillespie, when Margaret Gillespie, this relatively junior um, FBI analyst, when she saw those cables, she immediately knew mm. this is very important. And I need to go inform my colleagues at, at um, you know, the, the FBI's counterterrorism center immediately i mean she there was no question in her mind how important these cables were um so it's it's um it puts wilshire very much on the spot here and he sends some very interesting cables in in july of 2001 that we could talk about um that indicate he seems to understand that he's kind of on the spot here um, but he's he's a crucial wilshire is a crucial figure in all of this bureaucratic malfeasance preventing the the fbi from becoming aware of what it should have known he is central to a lot of the problems in regarding the wall uh, between the CIA and the FBI. Yeah. And the, it seems that the real fun begins, that they come into the country. And as soon as they get here, they're met with Saudi agents. Yeah. Uh, one such particular is Omar Bayoumi, who basically lies to 9-11 Commission, saying that he was in the restaurant with an associate, and that associate is Kaysan bin Don. And, but the reverse, actually, Kaysan bin Don, I posted the uh, interview by the FBI, it was basically Kaysan bin Don Omar Bayoumi, who went to Fahad Al-Tumeri at the King Fahad Mosque in Los Angeles in Culver yep. City, told them to go and meet with these two Saudis. They go to the restaurant, which is called the Mediterranean Inn or Mediterranean Cafe, and they are already there. So Khalid Al-Midar and Wafahadmi are there. And then they go and meet them. And as soon as he meets them, he gets them a uh, driver's license, helps them get an apartment and whatnot. And they stay with him. And meanwhile, he does videotape because Omar Bayoumi, you know, has this fascination about videotaping everything. And uh, just recently with the, yeah. we were talking about this before, the party, Encore, the party. Yeah. we finally get to see a little bit of Omar Bayoumi, Khalid Al-Madar. Now, uh, with the Saudis helping him, like people like Omar Bayoumi, Osama Bastan, Fahad Al-Tamiri. Later on, 
you have Israelis using an art student ring and a moving front companies like Urban Movie Systems, Classic International Movers, who are monitoring members of the Hamburg cell. And that's the pilots involved mm-hmm. with the plane's operation, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shay, and Ziad Jarrah. All of this, Ben, all of this is happening under the auspices and the total ignorance of the Department of State and the Department of Justice. So while this is going on, the CIA nefariously is going and catfishing uh, the FBI about information, whether they're whether they know that Khalid al-Badar and Nawaf al-Hazmi are in the country. And again, I'll play a short clip. This is from the Joint House Inquiry, where actually Carl Levin, once again, actually interviews uh, George Tennant about a CIA analyst showing pictures to yeah. the FBI. Yeah. Let's take a look. Let me read you the staff report. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the Joint Inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding Elmidar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travel to the United States, but he stated that he would not share information outside of the CIA unless he had authority to do so. That's what he told our staff. Do you disagree with that? Sir, I've talked to him as well. Do you disagree that he said that to our staff? Well, no, I don't disagree. He said it to your staff. I'm telling you what he told Did he, he tell me. you something differently? Yes, sir. Okay. He gave me a different perspective. So he told you and he told our staff something differently. Well, okay. Co- but I, I think it's important, sir. Yeah, but our time is limited, so let me just... Now, it's funny because, uh, again, it comes from the great researchers, Ray Nolashewski and John Duffy, that that analyst is Clark Shannon. He works at the yeah. Counterterrorism Center. Um, so what he was doing there was basically fishing the FBI about whether they knew who these people were in the photos. Yeah. I mean, what else was, what else would it be other than seeing if the FBI actually knew them? Because if they didn't know them, that means they didn't know they were in the country. Well, later on, in a follow-up meeting in July of 2000, Clark Shannon goes back. And this time he's speaking with Dina Corsi and Steve Bungert, who are at this meeting, and basically says, in the photo is Khalid Abidor. And he tells him that he has a Saudi passport. But what he doesn't tell him is that they're in the country and they have U.S. visas. Now, he tells Tennant this, I guess, in the business, because you can see Tennant says, well, he told me something different. Well, in a closed-door meeting with the joint inquiry, Clark Shannon states that it was Tennant who told him not to share that information. So right there, not only do we have tenant lying about not seeing the nobody reading the cable, but here we again, we have him basically lying about what he told Clark Shannon. I mean, obviously if Clark Shannon is lying here, Ben. He's fired. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's gone. He's just gone. But he wasn't fired. So what does this say in essence? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, tenant is obviously very personally implicated in all of this. And he's, he's, when you look at his relationship with Shannon, when you look at his relationship, we haven't talked as much about Richard Blee, but he was running the Alex station mm. during these crucial times when Tom Wilshire was, was, um, you know, doing what I've, what I've called bureaucratic malfeasance. Mm. Um, and I think that it, and, and in particular, you know, when you look at the, when you look at the fact that Blee was running, was running the Alex station during this crucial, what you, what you would naively call failures. If you didn't, if you hadn't looked at all the evidence and shown that they were not, not really failures, but intentional mm. failures, Blee was, was rewarded. I mean, Blee was made head of the cobble station and then he was put in charge of operation jawbreaker, which was the, the CIA's mm. effort to capture Osama bin Laden when, when bin Laden was hiding out in Tora Bora during the initial stages of the American invasion of Afghanistan. So, um, 
these these not only are they not punished these people who do these things um but they're in fact you know it looks like they are being rewarded for what they have done here um so it it really um the the idea that you could chalk it up to uh sort of a mistake or something like this i mean uh it 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 just doesn't it just is not credible to me when you look at how um these people are dealt with after the fact because it, as you say, with Shannon, it's very clear that Shannon lied, and yet nothing, nothing ever happened to him. I mean, this whole issue of um, because the FBI had an informant. I briefly alluded to this: the fact that Khalid Al-Madar and Khalid bin Atash or Walid bin Atash had mm. been confused mm. um, because this FBI informant had confused them. Um, and uh, you well, know, I, that, well, I, I believe it was Fahad Al Kuso. Yeah, I think I think that that is the name. I think that that's the name of of the the informant that, that has ultimately come out. But um, you know, as you say, that is an instance of clearly Shannon was given names. I mean, clearly Shannon was told these people the FBI cannot know about, and so you need to do your little fishing expedition to figure out do they know who these people are. Now, something else that you mentioned, because all of this ultimately. Um, and this is something that that Aaron and Peter and I um, talked a lot about and wrote about in in part two of the article series that we mm-hmm. wrote um, is how was this, I mean, operationally, bureaucratically, how was this all done? How, because one instance that you talk about is the fact that Omar al-Bayoumi shows up at this restaurant, Mediterranean Cafe in, um, in San Diego. Uh, or I believe in Los Angeles. I think they flew to Los Angeles. Yes. So they found them in Los Angeles and brought them to San Diego. How did he, you know, he was told to, Omar al-Bayoumi was told by his handler um, to go there. And the two men, Khalid Omadar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, these two al-Qaeda assets, they were already there. Well, how did Omar al-Bayoumi's handler, uh, how did he know that those men would be there? There is clearly a back channel of information where in this case, re- regarding Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, um, where clearly um, the Saudi intelligence agencies know a lot about what al-Qaeda is doing. Clearly, the al-Qaeda organization is full of Saudi assets, and they're able to get information out of this um, out of this organization. I mean, you, you also have quotes. I mean, um, I believe Prince Bandar was quoted by Vanity Fair in 2000 saying, that the Saudi intelligence was was monitoring all these men, and if there had been better communication between the Saudis and the CIA, that that they would have um, been able to tell them about it. I think half of that is true. I think that the Saudis did know the movements of of certainly the the West Coast um, group of group of hijackers. As you mentioned, what we haven't talked about much is is the um, the the Hamburg cell, Mohammed Ada and his group that were in Florida, which were who were certainly being. I mean, it seems evidence is circumstantial, but it strongly suggests that they were being observed by Israeli intelligence in Florida. Likely, there was a similar back channel there, um, but uh, we don't we don't know as much about that. Um, but what this points to is a is a what we essentially theorized is that Tenet um, Tenet's relationship with Bandar um, was what facilitated a lot of this information sharing because we know that Prince Bandar. Um, who was the at the time uh, the Saudi ambassador to the United States? He was uh, referred to as Bandar Bush because he was very close with the Bush family, going way back, going back to H.W. Bush. Um, you know, H.W. Bush is H.W. Uh, Bush has a, had a long history 
um, of connections with uh, with Saudi oil and, and with the Saudi government. Uh, in particular, H.W. Bush had a close relationship with Kamal Adam, who was the uh, head of Saudi intelligence. So in any case, Bandar and Tenet um, had a close relationship. Um, and, uh, and we know from reporting that has been done uh, that uh, Tenet would um, have his own uh, private lines of communication and that, for instance, the, the Near East Division of the CIA would go nuts because Tenet would, would learn things from his contacts in the Saudi government and in Saudi intelligence and wouldn't tell anybody else in the CIA. And it was only very belatedly, if, if at all, that the other elements of the CIA would find these things out. Um, and so this would, and then, on, so in addition to the personal relationship, uh, and this is something that Peter Del Scott theorized, uh, is some sort of uh, liaison agreement, uh, which would have been a, a sort of eyes only liaison agreement between, which we know certainly these kinds of things definitely existed. I mean, the uh, Saudi defense minister, whose name escapes me at the moment, following 9-11, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post indicating that some kind of um, national security peer-to-peer uh, -peer relationship existed between Saudi and American intelligence and defense officials. Um, so it seems that some kind of back channel existed because um, somehow Clark Shannon would have needed to know the names of specific people who he needed to find out in this specific instance of this of him uh you know having the sort of ruse with the um with the fbi's informant um he would have had to know who he was trying to find out about um and so how he got those names in the first place um and and of course uh something else that fenton um talks about in his book um and it's really what drew uh you know fenton describes this as being really what drew his attention to this case of Al-Hazmi and Al-Madara in the first place is the fact that there was actually pretty good information sharing between the CIA and the FBI on other issues. There didn't seem to be any problems, but it was really with Khalid Al-Madara and Nawaf Al-Hazmi and this information about the visa very specifically, which all up to, I mean, you mentioned Clark Shannon continuing to dissemble, you know, all the way into the summer of 2001, but of course it begins in uh, January, well, December of 99, January 2000, when they first become aware of this visa information, um, it's specifically information about Khalid al-Madar and the Waffle Hazmi, which is not passed. Um, so there must have been um, some back-channel information. And again, we speculated that uh, it could have been between Prince Bandar and George Tenet directly on a, on, you know, on a, on a level, on that level. Um, and certainly as, as, uh, as these conversations between Shannon and Tenet demonstrate, I mean, Tenet uh, was was involved in this, uh, and then of course there's that that recent phone call that uh, or the phone call that recently leaked um, last spring that shed some further light on Tenet's personal involvement in all of this. Um, so all of this is to say that this is we've been talking about Tom Wilshire extensively, and you know he's a pretty he's a mid level bureaucrat at the CIA, but clearly this extends up to the highest levels, um, and Tenet, you know, far from being held accountable. For what on just, I mean, again, taken naively was a huge failure by the, C I mean, Tenet is admitting, you know, clearly with hindsight, we should have read this cable. Well, people did read the cable. Yeah. People did read the cable and they did not tell people they knew they should have. And they likely did so under orders from as senior as Tenet himself. Um, and and whether that actually did happen, we don't know because Tenet was never asked about that. He certainly would have lied about it anyway. Um, but it clearly indicates 
some kind of, um, I mean, I think it, it goes up to the highest levels of the CIA. And then you begin to ask questions about who knew above that, of course, which which gets even dicier. But uh, when you talk about Tenet, it, it certainly seems pretty clear that um, that he he knew a lot more than he was letting on in his congressional testimony. That's for sure. I mean, I I I don't I could we can only speculate as to how much higher uh, past Tenet that that could have known. But I I think there's a level of like plausible deniability right. regarding the State Department at, for sure. Right. Um, so in August, all right, we, late August 2001, Blee runs to the White House and calls for an emergency meeting right. with Kofor Black right. and basically says that uh, uh, that there's going to be a large scale attack. And because the warnings were already out and even foreign intelligence from Germany, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, Russia, there are both, all of the warning signs, right? The, the red, the flashing red siren that the, uh, the Al-Qaeda is inside the United States. And of course, with the infamous August 6th presidential daily brief, where it's, it's entitled, Bin Laden determined to strike in United States. And to extrapolate on that a little bit, Condoleezza Rice, when she gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission, basically said that the title was Bin Laden determined to strike United States. But, and that just tells you that could have been anywhere in the world. But no, the title said in the United States. And this comes from the information that was gleaned from a millennium bombing plot operative named Ahmed Rassam, who was captured while trying to get into the United States that was going to bomb LAX airport. So Blee and Tenet, I mean, Blee and, and um, Black, they basically spill the beans, you know, not everything, but they basically say Al Qaeda is inside the United States. To which Richard Clark, in his own book, Against All Odds, basically says, all right, how long did you know this? You know, how long were they inside the United States? Who are they? Well, he tells them their name, but doesn't tell them where they're at and doesn't tell them that they have U.S. visas. Still, even now, we're just weeks away from the event itself. So now the FBI is basically trying to run around, trying to find a needle in the haystack. Um, and God knows where they are. I mean, at this point, it's alleged that Khalid Al-Madano operates in New York at this point. This is late August, by the way. So they're not in California. But what does the FBI do? Well, they send a novice FBI agent to do the work in trying to find Khalid Al-Madano Al-Azmi in an old database called the Tip-Off Database, yeah. which is a Tip-Off Database, old database the FBI uses. Um, no luck. Uh, I forgot the name of the guy. His name was Christopher something, and can't think of his full name. But he goes and looks and he, you know, he's really just one man into himself, um, can't find anything. Everybody's running around with their head on fire, Ben. And meanwhile, the NSA, the CIA, the Saudis, the Israelis, they all know what's happening to an extent that we do know of, still are not up front to this day. Weeks later, 9-11 happens. And then all of a sudden, Clark Shannon and I think no, it was um some case officer is actually in Yemen when shows the photographs of the men attending the Malaysia summit meeting to Ali Sufan and tells them their names. And Ali Sufan, according to him, runs to the bathroom and vomits. Yep. Finally, he gets to know, but by then it's too late. What does this mean, Ben? 
Because at this point, I mean, the names of Khalid Al-Madar and Nawafal Hazmi, so many people have tried at so many points to get those names to the relevant people at the FBI mm. who would be able to do something about it. And as you say, instead, Dina Corsi gives it to this extremely junior person. And Dina Corsi herself appears to be operating under orders from Tom Wilshire, which is another fascinating wrinkle in all of this. Um, is Wilshire's relationship with Corsi. I mean, again, Wilshire seems to be pulling this, a lot of the strings here. An entirely separate issue is the Zacharias Musawi case, yes. which is another instance of something very similar happening with where where the CIA knows a lot more about this guy and they and they're and they're blocking this information. Um, if you turn back the clock very slightly back to July of 2001, um, a very interesting sequence of, of things happened. So Khalid al-Madar, um, is out of the country. He he had left the U.S. Mm. I believe in the summer of 2000. Um, he's likely involved in some kind of planning for the U.S.S. coal bombing in October of 2000. Um, and then he is in. It's very sketchy as to where he is, but at some point he was in Mecca and Medina. He was in that area of Saudi Arabia. He eventually makes his way back to the U.S. and he makes his way back to the U.S. on the 4th of July 2001. That's when he re-enters the U.S. Now, uh, this is again something that leads me to speculate that there was back channels of information that certain people were aware because it's at precisely this time that Tom Wilshire begins sending these frantic cables to Richard Blee, among many other people that these cables that, that were sent these cables within this, the CIA's counterterrorism center, probably Kofor Black saw some or all of these cables, for instance, he was running the counter the CIA's counterterrorism center at this point. Um, I believe Blee during the summer of 2001 officially uh, he was the head of the CIA Sunni Extremism Center, I believe, mm -hmm. and he was reporting directly to Kofor Black at this point. Mm -hmm. So at precisely this moment, the siren is blinking red, summer of 2001, everybody knows something is coming. Um, Wilshire, uh, Khalid Al-Madar re-enters the United States on July 4, 2001. Wilshire sends, starts sending these cables on July 5th of 2001, talking about the fact that this Khalid Al-Madar guy is a very important person. He was involved in this redacted. We don't know what that redacted is. I suspect it's probably a reference to the to the, um, to the the coal bombing, um, since we know Khalid Al-Madar was involved in that, and the CIA probably would have been aware of that. Wilshire probably would have been aware of that. Um, and so it seemed, and Wilshire is asking Blee and uh, his other superiors, can I give this information to the FBI? I mean, even Wilshire at this point, who has personally blocked this information from going to the FBI, is now July 5th, beginning July 5th and, and, su and subsequent days and weeks, sending cables asking, can I get this information to the FBI? He was never given permission to do that. Um, the fact that he at this point seemed to understand, it's hard for me to suss out, you know, what's the psychology behind what's going on here. I do think at some level, Wilshire understood that he was personally on the hook here because it was his name back way back in January 2000 that was he was personally was the one that Michael and Casey said per Wilshire we're not giving this information to the FBI so he's on the hook there he saw the cables in May of 2001 so he's on the hook there and so now when he probably through some alternative intelligence source some back channel becomes aware that Khalid Al-Madar has just re-entered the United States the next day I think he starts freaking out because he's aware now I am on the hook for this I don't want to take the fall in front of Congress, right? I mean, I think he's anticipating an, an investigation when inevitably it does happen, right? I don't want to be on the hook for this. So let me send these cables where I say, this Khalid Omadar guy is a bad guy. Can I pass this information to the FBI? And then he could put his hands up and say, well, I did what I could. I asked him to give the information over. Of course, that doesn't happen. 
we talked about it was Margaret Gillespie that eventually found these these cables between Kuala Lumpur and Bangkok. And that was what began the sequence of events of, of the information starting to make its way to the FBI finally. Um, but but as you say, um, it was given to a very junior person. You know, the the Al-Qaeda could not have done this without the CIA um, meddling with the investigation because their tradecraft was extremely poor. Typically, if you have cells, right, we talk about the Hamburg cell as a cell, but typically when you have cells, there's one, there's one point of contact and the cells go to this, to that node. And the, the reasoning behind that, you know, just for simple spycraft, tradecraft kind of reasons is that if a cell is compromised, at most, there's one person who knows about that cell. And so even if that person is then compromised, um, it's very unlikely that it would spread beyond that. On the other hand, all of these guys were living under their real names. They were living together. They were paying utility bills, paying their rent, renting cars, buying tickets, all under their real names. And you mentioned an outdated database was used to look them up. If this guy hadn't been a novice in intelligence investigations, which he was, he would have known, just run these guys through a commercial background check database. You would have found out all of their previous addresses. You would have been able to find their relations, who they had been living with, all of this relevant information that would have helped the FBI in the final days of August to at least do something to try to stop this from happening. Uh, but that was not done. And again, you know, we find Wilshire, uh, as I mentioned, being involved uh, in this, apparently, and, and Fenton talks about this in his book, um, apparently giving orders to Dina Corsi and essentially instructing her to do this. And she pulled all of these um, legal shenanigans. Um, again, you mentioned that instance of, of Ali Sufan, um, you know, going and vomiting because they, they, these were precisely the names, these were precisely the names that they were trying to get access to and, and trying to investigate. But here is Dina Corsi, um, you know, and, and additionally, some some lawyers at the FBI um, doing everything they could bureaucratically to stymie the FBI, uh, having to do with these arcane um, reasons related to the FBI uh, separating intelligence investigations versus criminal investigations and all of this. But all of it was done in the service of slowing down the FBI's investigation as much as possible, um, presumably so that this attack could could go on. Um, you know, I don't think Dina Corsi had anything close to that level of knowledge or anything like that, but I think people who were effectively instrumentalizing her did. Um, and as you say, Europeans knew this was going to happen. There's a funny, um, somebody on Twitter posted a great excerpt. Um, uh, and, and in fact, Vladimir Putin warned George Bush that something like that, an attack like this was going to happen because he was learning from his own Russian intelligence sources that something like this was going to happen. Um, totally fascinating. Just shows you the level of awareness that that all of these foreign intelligence agencies that were ostensibly allied with the United States at that point, you know, Russia was an, uh, essentially an American ally at that point, certainly the Europeans, they all knew about this. Um, and yet the FBI was kept in the dark in a very controlled manner by a very small group of people at the CIA um, and again, Tom Wilshire's name shows up again and again and again in this. Um, so I, I think it's really important to know that and understand that had it not, it's not that it's not that Al Qaeda was smart and they were well organized and they knew what they were doing. I mean, for, for God's sake, they're the leader of their organization. His phone was being tapped by the NSA unbeknownst to him. Right. I mean, they were not good at right. tradecraft. Um, it was only because of the um, active efforts on the part of specific people in the CIA that Al-Qaeda was able to do this. It's only because of that. Had that not happened, the FBI naturally through the course of their investigation would have been able to stop this or at least 
impede it to some degree. I mean, the FBI does not exactly have a great track record with respect to these things. They would have at least become aware of it, which the CIA seemed intent on not allowing to happen. Uh, so that uh, I think that's a crucial thing to understand when you talk about this this whole sequence of events. Just to add a little bit of on that, it was brought to my attention from my co-host Richard Cox of the Darkened Hour. He showed me an article, I want to say two years ago, it was from the Guardian of all uh, publications. Yeah, you shared this. Yeah, uh, did I show it that the, the, yeah. the, the number of the Yemen hub is on yes. there? Is it the year nineteen ninety nine? No less. And I'm like, how does Al Qaeda keep using that number? Meanwhile, it's publicly known. Right. Any any Tom, Dick, and Harry could have called it up and right. asked, you know, is so and so there? You know what I mean? But Al Qaeda continued to use that Stunning. phone. Stunning. It's it's an example of their incompetence. But again, right. they were right. they had very powerful <laughs> friends who were able to protect them. Uh, and allow them to do what they did. I mean, it just I, really, it's its stunning when you think it's also deflating when you think about it. And, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't I talk much about the Hamburg cell because I want to have you back on and talk about that uh, separately um, and like a part two to this one. Mm -hmm. But um, regarding the whys now, I mean, this is, of course, I mean, speculation at best as to why the CIA, why the NSA did not share this information. Because had this information been shared, like you said before, this 9-11 mm. would never have happened. Mm -hmm. Same thing to go with Able Danger, the Defense Intelligence Agency yes. operation. I've interviewed two of those people, Eric Kleinsmith and, and Anthony Schaefer, whereas they were ordered to destroy information yes. uh, about terrorist operatives who had that been shared with the FBI because it started that in 1998, 99. Same yes. thing. Why do you think the CIA, and now you alluded to it in your third part series of that written article with Aaron Good and, and um, Peter Dale Scott, but I want you to elaborate on to the why. And again, this is a tough question because, you know, we really don't know. Why do you think the NSA CIA did not share this information? I think that they're, so I think in the first place, you know, it's important to understand compartmentalization, right? As mm -hmm. I mentioned, I don't think Dina Corsi knew the why, mm -hmm. for instance. She was just doing as she was told. I think even I think even potentially George Tenet to a certain extent may not have known the full why behind many of these things. He do, he was doing what he was potentially told by potentially people who were superior to him. That said, I think um, when you look at, I think there are two. I think there are two essential reasons. I think one is the geopolitical. Um, what were what were um, uh, in particular American oil interests in um, the Caspian Basin? And um, and in Afghanistan, which is directly adjacent to the Caspian Basin, uh, you know, you have Dick Cheney as CEO of Halliburton, which is a major oil mm. service. Basically, if a well gets dug somewhere, Halliburton had some hand in, in digging that well. Right. Um, in, I believe, 1998, he's talking about how the Caspian is rapidly becoming this very important uh, oil uh, source of oil. Um, and there were many American shenanigans in Azerbaijan in the, in the 90s, for instance. Um, you know, Sybil Edmonds has talked about this, Gladio B. I, I believe Unocal had to deal with the Taliban, I, I, I think, as well. Yeah, to build up to build a pipeline. I think that was I think that was part of it. I think I think more broadly, having an American military presence in that region was was crucial for these for some of these oil majors. I think it was important to have that security. Um, I think longstanding American antagonisms towards Russia, which go way, way back. You know, I think a lot of this gets into this great game. Geopolitics, Afghanistan has long been an important, it was important for the British. It was important. I mean, the Brits and the Russians fought wars over it in the 19th century. So it's long been an important battleground. And I think this is yet, an, you know, just another chapter, sadly, for the Afghani people uh, in this in this whole affair. Um, I think if you look at the person of Richard Blee, 
um, who we've mentioned briefly, but we haven't gotten into a ton of detail about him. I think he's a very he he in a in a man is exemplary of of this geopolitical angle to it, um, because you know when when Kofor Black comes in to the counterterrorism center, um, you know he and Blee start a Caspian tour. You know they go to Azerbaijan and they may they negotiate an agreement. Um, it's it appears that that Blee um, was a part of the negotiations uh, to get this K two airbase, which became a crucial airbase. Um, when the U.S. did end up invading Afghanistan. Um, Blee was also conducting negotiations with the nascent uh, Afghan Northern Alliance, uh, which at the, at the, right up until the eve of 9-11 was being uh, led by a man named Ahmed Shah Massoud, um, who was a, a nationalist Afghan leader, um, a Tajik, um, and uh, who had also been a KGB asset probably yeah. in the past as well. Um, but he was he was killed. He was assassinated on September 9th of 2001. Very likely, um, Aaron Good and Peter Del Scott wrote an article about this in Covert Action. Uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud was very likely killed with American complicity just two days before 9-11. And Blee was meeting with Massoud regularly. Mm. Seems inexplicable to me. Uh, and and I, I think almost certainly Blee would have had some knowledge about this assassination, which was crucial because Massoud was opposed to American forces on the ground. Massoud was fine taking American money, taking American weapons um, for to to fight the Taliban who who was controlling Afghanistan at that point, um, and he didn't want American soldiers in. So it seems that assassinating him was crucial, and Blee was Blee was right there on the ground negotiating these agreements with the with the Northern Alliance in advance of the attacks. Obviously, Blee is then running the Alex Station while Tom Wilshire is running all of this interference to allow the attacks to happen, and then subsequent to 9/11, Blee uh, is promoted and given a position as the chief of station in Kabul, mm-hmm. right? And then he is running the Operation Jawbreaker to, which, I mean, you know, let Osama bin Laden right. you know, Escape. run free, essentially. Um, yeah, and, and Duffy and Novoselsky talk about Blee's role in this. I mean, it's <laughs> people within the CIA were even saying, are you intentionally allowing him to get away with what you're doing? I mean, what's going on here? Um, so Blee is there laying, what I'm saying is that Blee is there laying the groundwork for the American invasion of Afghanistan then he is there um, muddying the waters, ensuring that the FBI doesn't find out certain relevant information about Al-Hazmi and Al-Badar, certainly probably other things that he was doing that we don't know about. And then after the fact, appears to have been rewarded. And of course, Blee had a close relationship with Tenet. Um, Blee's father, David Blee, had been a legendary officer in the CIA. Um, so I think Blee is, is indicative of the geopolitical angle here, that the U.S. had its sights set on invading Afghanistan, and it needed a precipitating event which would um, give not only the American public a, a reason why, but also internationally, because um, you know NATO was involved in the invasion, and so it needed to appear that Al Qaeda, and which was uh, you know alleged by the United States to have been based in Afghanistan, which wasn't really true. Al Qaeda had more important bases in Afghanistan, but it was alleged at that time to have been based in Afghanistan. Mm. That gave NATO a pretext to become a part of this invasion, um, and then internationally. You know, this led to UN Security Council resolutions decrying, you know, international terrorism, and and this led to, um, you know, a soft response, for instance, from Russia and China, which might have been a different uh, different uh, set of circumstances if the U.S. had just invaded Afghanistan, you know, out of the blue, right in Russia and China's neck of the woods, right? They might have viewed it very differently. Um, so I think that that geopolitical angle is crucial. Um, and part one of the the three article series that that we wrote has a lot of those details. I think the second one is something that we all feel here in the United States, which is 
the legitimation of this increased national security presence here at home. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, well, I used to commute through Penn Station in New York City all the time, and it was normal to see police officers and National Guardsmen holding assault rifles, for instance. That became a very normal thing after 9-11. Obviously, the kind of surveillance you go through when you get on a plane but of course, uh, routine NSA warrantless surveillance of all of our communications. Um, even before that, there were the warrantless wiretaps that were uh, something of a controversy under the Bush administration. I think this was certainly a, a motive. I think if you could, um, in particular, the creation of these fusion centers, which is a, a subject of great concern for me, mm. because it, it integrates local police departments into a broader national security apparatus. It makes them part of effectively part of the cia part of the fbi and that idea that these fusion centers were needed um was legitimated by this cover story um that the reason that al-qaeda was able to do what they did on 9-11 was because of poor communication between the cia and other agencies we've just been talking for the past hour about how it was not poor communication right. it was intentional, it was intentional. But, the, but the story and this was in the 9-11 commission report even it was one of their recommendations that it, that intelligence sharing and be improved between these agencies, and that led directly to the creation of these fusion centers, which again, as I said, deputizes local police departments uh, to become arms of the national security state in a very direct way. Um, and for instance, you see the surveillance of of Muslims in New York City, which, in my opinion, is really just a mechanism to uh, entangle people into these false terror plots to further create this sense of you know, Islamic terror is a major threat and we need to allow this security state to expand. So I think that was a second, um, hi obviously highly related to the first, but a second component, which is a major part of the why behind this happening. And I think the fact that the reason which was given for the creation of these fusion centers was totally nonsense for all the reasons we've just explained. It was not a failure of, of intelligence sharing. It was an intentional action by specific people within the CIA to block this information. It was not just a failure. It was not an oversight. It was an intentional blocking. And yet that has been flipped on its head and turned into this justification for this further intensification of surveillance and national security apparatus just in our everyday lives. Uh, so I think that that's got to be uh, considered as a, as a major component here. You know, and also to add about Richard Blee, for example, and this is, he, I agree with you 100%. Very few people mention Richard Blee anymore, but he is central from 1999 forward. Um, yeah. I have read the book by Gary Bernstein, Jawbreaker, um, and yeah. in the book, even Gary states when he led the operation, then he was being replaced by Rich, that's who he named in the book, Rich, that even the Jawbreaker team, basically all these special force operations that were with them, wanted to just walk off and say, no way, because yeah. Bernstein was actually a capable leader, and they had been Laden surrounded in a, in a house, I think, near the White Mountains in Pakistan. So Blee comes in, and who's he bring? Michelle Lane Casey with him. Yeah. And allegedly, according to Bernstein, not from me or anybody else, according to Bernstein, the reason why they went there in the first place wasn't so much that Bernstein wasn't doing a good job. It was basically so they wouldn't give testimony to the 9-11 Commission or the Joint House Inquiry, which I find to be quite stunning because I think that would be right. Because if they were to question Richard Blee or Michelle Lane yes. Casey as to why they didn't share that information with the FBI regarding the cable or regarding Blee's uh, insistence on uh, uh, allowing Wilshire to basically circumvent information away from 
the Department of State or the principals meetings or with the FBI in general, uh, very well, like you said, 9-11 may have well could have been prevented just yeah. on that alone. Um, but Blee actually does get promoted and so does Black and so does Tennant and so does everybody else. In fact, now, you know, 21 years later, Alfreda Ann Bukowski is a beautician on Instagram. Yeah, we're not making this stuff up, folks. And it is stunning. And, yeah, and she had a very successful career by all appearances uh, in the national security state. I mean, she was known as the queen of torture. I mean, she was, you know, very heavily involved. I mean, she's had <laughs> a great. Allegedly, she actually does take time off and goes to see Khalid Sheikh Mohammed waterboarded. So. Yeah, and again, I think that that is an instance of her doing surveillance. I think she uh, allegedly she allegedly she did it for the sick thrill of seeing it. I think that really she wanted to know because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was himself protected by Qatari Secret Service. Right. I think I think that she wanted to know what he might have given up and and you know if that might have redounded to to uh, to them. So yeah, she she was a slick slick operator. And now she's found a uh, she's found a second career for herself. It's a and sick there, sick situation. And now with the the capture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Ramsey and all the other Al Qaeda affiliates allegedly involved with 9/11. The CIA tortures mercilessly these people for years. Um, and it leads to one thing, Ben, is that whether they told the truth, and that is something I've asked Ken Williams of the mm -hmm. FBI from the Phoenix memo. And mm -hmm. we'll talk about him when we talk about Hamburg cell in the next episode. Um, I asked Ken Williams, because he's helping with uh, Creedler and Creedler a law firm with the families. Mm. And I asked him, I said, do you think there's going to be a trial? And he says, mm. no. He thinks mm. that the federal government is going to do a deal with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramsey bin al-Sheikh and the five, and that they'll take the death penalty off the table if they plead guilty to 9-11. Mm. Also, we won't know if this happens. We will never know unless it's you know revealed 40 years from now. We will not know what the prosecution had or what they didn't have because it'll be not protected under uh, the National Archives. But Ken Williams seems to think that even if they told the truth, even in, we will we'll, we'll never know because they were tortured. How much did they tell the truth and how much did they lie? They will, the, the thing was, is that it's not so much important if they told the truth or told the lie. It's that we're left in limbo. We're yeah. left to believe and not know. And this yeah. is something I've always, you know, harping on is that, it's, you know, there's a great quote by, a forensic psychologist named E. Martin Schatz. And he basically says in a poem, on a letter he wrote to a JFK researcher, Vincent Saldana, he basically says that the problem with the American public is they're allowed to believe anything, but to yeah. know nothing. So right. in this case, Ben, even if they told the truth, how can we know? And yeah. even if they lied, you know, how can we know? If there's no trial and if they classify this information, you know, 9-11 goes the way of JFK. Is that what we're worried about? I think so. I think one of the things that is so darkly cynical about the use of torture um, on the 9-11 suspects is that it's known, I mean, it's been known for a long time that torture produces unreliable information. That's one. Two, some of the specific drugs that were used are known to cause memory loss. And they were certainly known by the CIA uh, doctors who used these drugs. And the third thing is under the American legal system, any kind of testimony or anything that is produced under torture is inadmissible in court. And so all three of these things 
um, you know, what, you know, I, I was sort of coming of age politically during the Bush administration. I think it was very common at this time to, and rightly so, to focus on the inhumanity of using torture and how, how horrifying it is that this was done. These people were, I mean, beyond Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but also minor people were brought to black sites and tortured and all of these things. But I think it was done in this darkly cynical way where people who did it, the people who ordered it, which we know included Dick Cheney. I mean, Dick Cheney had John, had you writing these, writing these memos authorizing the, the use of torture. I think that they understood that torture would muddy, as you say, we wouldn't be allowed to know because it would muddy the waters. It would break these men psychologically so that perhaps they would not know what the truth was, what had really happened. Right. I mean, when you are kept, you know, literally in the dark, you're put in a sensory deprivation tank, hung upside down by your ankles, all these kinds of horrifying, these drugs that are used to, to destroy your mind, all of these horrifying things that were done. Um, it leaves these men. I mean, I don't know what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is like today, but I, I highly doubt that he's in a very cogent state and can recall specific details of what he was doing, for instance, in 1999. You know what I mean? And so even if there was a trial, how much would they, how much would they even be able to talk about at this point in time, so many decades after so much was done to them? I think that this was done in a very calculated way to take these people who, as I mentioned, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for instance, protected by the Qataris, he may have, he was a pretty smart guy. It's possible he knew some of that, right? I think it was, I think these techniques were used to essentially break these men so that anything that they said, you would have no idea how to read it to whether, as you say, whether it's true, whether it's false, whether it was, whether they said it to just get the, the pain to stop, who knows? And it leaves us, the public trying to understand what happened completely in the dark. Um, because, you know, these men who were intricately involved in the details of this are now unreliable witnesses as to what happened. And I think they very intentionally were made to be unreliable witnesses uh, in a very calculated way. I think that's, I think that's the purpose of the torture program. I think that's the reason, that's one of the reasons I think it was done, uh, was to leave us in the dark and and without these crucial witnesses who may have given us important information about what was going on uh, in those, in those years and months leading up to 9-11. Ben, Howard, um, I'd love to have you back on for a part two to talk about the Hamburg cell and foreign intelligence uh, regarding the monitoring of Mohammed Atta, Mohammed al -Shih and Ziad Jara in a uh, follow-up to this. And Ben, thank you very much uh, for coming on today. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Adam. Likewise, it's great to be here.